Okay, rolling. Okay, welcome to the Change Pod, the place to come where you want to understand how change happens. No, I haven't got that right. The place to learn about how change happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, let's go again. Welcome to the Change Pod, where you come to learn about how change happens. My name is? My name is Mark Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> And my name is Matthias Schulte. Okay, I'll um, start it again. <laughs> no, that's fine. You know, perfection is overrated anyway. Today we talk about shrimp in Vietnam, prison keys in Denmark, and school schedules in Romania. What do these things have in common? Well, they give us clues to how to respond to COVID-19 and other change challenges. They are also examples of the positive deviance approach to change, that we want to discuss today. Positive Deviance, or short PD, seeks to identify people in communities who do things differently and more effectively. Positive Deviance celebrates its 30th anniversary this year, a reason more to make PD the center of our episode today. Later we will talk with Lars Thuesen, one of the most experienced PD facilitators who will talk about his experiences with PD and gives us a deeper insight into this approach. Mark, perhaps we should first talk about the shrimp in Vietnam that got the whole PD thing started. Do you want to tell the story of Jerry and Monique? Okay. Jerry and Monique Sternen, obviously they were married, worked for an NGO, which uh, was asked in by the Vietnam government to address this crisis, uh, famine crisis in, in the country. Now, this is South Vietnam. The, the famine came about actually because of the privatization of collective farming and that caused a lot of issues in terms of food supply and families were not able to generate the food that they needed to survive. Mm-hmm. So the Vietnam government asked the NGO over to, to try and work on this. Jerry only and Monique only had six months to try and address this. Which is nothing, right? In terms no. of uh, setting up a project like that, it's it's doomed for failure already. Well, I'm... I mean, if you think of famine, I mean, mostly it's it's dumping rice and other food in there, isn't it? And it's kind mm-hmm. of, but there were not a lot of resources around. The Vietnam government didn't have a lot of resources. And Jerry and Monique rose to the challenge and they drew upon this work they'd been developing, looking at, at positive deviance, where you kind of, in a in a community, and this is very important, it's, a, it's the community here. The community is the unit of analysis. Mm-hmm. In the community, they, they wanted to find whether there were people are families who were actually healthier or were, were seen to be getting stronger, they were he- increased body weight, they were kind of he- more healthy than the others. So instead of focusing on the kids that were actually suffering and understanding that part of the famine, they were actually focusing on the opposite. Absolutely. On the positive a- aspects, on the people who actually dealt with it in a positive and successful way. That's the key, isn't it? I mean, that's the, that was the key to the whole approach because we generally do focus on the negative sides and try and right. fix that. That's kind of like, let's see where things are working well and what can we learn when things are working well. Mm-hmm. So well, what they had to do was um, gather some data to understand where these positive people were. So they weighed children to find out where there were kind of heavier kids in the village. But the next challenge was then really like, okay, now we know some families were different. They had kids that were healthier, they weighed more, and they started to interview them. And the interviews didn't really give them much of a clue of what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Because if you ask these people, is there anything you do differently? They would say like, no, I mean, we have dinner and lunch and we feed them with rice. And there's really nothing that is different from other families, to be honest. Richard and... Pascal, who we know as well, who's who worked with Jerry and Monique. I mean, when they wrote a book about this many years the power later. Power of positive deviance. They talked about this idea of social proof, which was how do you actually find out what is going on in these communities if, you know, people tell you stories, but maybe they're also being defensive, perhaps. Maybe there are kind of traditions which mm. are well-established and they don't want to break those, like in terms of how you cook food and what type of food you eat. There might be breaking norms and might be taboos and so on that they're they're kind of involved. So they had to go and observe what these mm-hmm. people were, were, families were doing. And what they found was very interesting because it was very micro-level behaviors, if you think about it. Okay, they got rice. 
but it wasn't sufficient to feed all the kids. So what the positive deviants were doing was they were mixing this with stuff that they find around the village and the outskirts of the village, some shrimps. Shrimps and crabs? And leaves and things. Leaves from the sweet potatoes. So normally you just take the sweet potato, yeah. but they actually took the green from the sweet potato that you normally throw away and mixed that into the rice, especially of the kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was leading to a more balanced, nutritious meal. Giving the proteins, giving the vitamins they probably needed and didn't get from a all-rice diet. Now, the other important thing they found was that these families did not just feed them once or even twice a day. What they did was they gave them little bits of food throughout the day. So they probably had about five, mm -hmm. maybe even six little meals throughout the day. And what, what that did was that staved off hunger, but also kind of made the food stretch further as well. Mm -hmm. So there was also practice in terms of how they were feeding their kids. When Jerry and Monique saw this, they were saying, oh, that's, that's interesting. How can we then scale it up? Which is then really the problem. How do you do it, right? In a normal best practice approach, you say like, okay, this is the solution. We're sending out some educators, some trainers, and now everyone puts like the shrimp into the food and this is the way we do it now. But they chose a different approach that worked actually much better and which was much more sensitive to the particular culture they were in. Mm. Which was? <laughs> which was? <laughs> So they actually asked the families and asked the parents who did things differently to teach others and talk about that to the other community. They just facilitated that process. The actual learning came from within the communities. It's a bottom-up process and also it kind of privileges context, which raises a lot of interesting issues when you're thinking about change. So the reason that we, we wanted to explore this was, um, I mean, a lot of people are going to be facing these intractable problems post-COVID, perhaps in the past, a lot of organizations, in a lot of different situations, they've tried a lot of stuff and it doesn't work. Mm. And maybe this is an approach which can address those kind of intractable problems. The positive deviance approach is particularly interesting when other things do not work that well, when this typical top-down process of, okay, this is the solution, now we implement it, if that doesn't really work that well. And the, the basic philosophy here, right, is that the solution is already there. The solution is already in the community. And we just facilitate finding that solution and helping the people who own that solution to disseminate it throughout the community. Uh, William Gibson, the um, science fiction writer, there's this well-known phrase he came up with in one of his, his novels saying, the future is here, it's just unevenly distributed which in a way kind of sums up the positive deviance approach. So I, I think in a, a, a very resource-constrained future, global warming, fewer economic resources, high unemployment, you know, the type of world of more adverse world we're going into, a, a, an approach like this actually might be really interesting to use and develop and explore. And it really caught on. I read that currently there are more than 100 positive deviance projects in more than 45 countries, and they have affected, they estimate, at least like 30 million people. So it's really an approach that, especially in the last years, caught on. Not so much in corporate life, but more in the world of NGOs and um, developmental change. So the, I mean, the interesting thing here is, if you look at it in the commercial context, what is it that an organization might need to do to embed a, an approach such as positive deviance? Because in many ways, it can be countercultural, as you've already kind of outlined, you know, this top-down approach, it has to be systematic, it has to be scalable very quickly. So organizations tend to be biased towards a particular model of change. Consultants quite often sell them a, a package or a particular approach, which they can introduce and you know will have certain benefits. But really, this approach is, is really starting really the opposite end of the telescope. But then it's important to clarify what change means in a positive deviance approach. It is adaptive change. It's not triggering radical innovation, for example. It does not help to reinvent an organization. It's more like change in evolution theory, adapting to new situations. In evolution theory, you have mutations 
deviances from the norm that survive in the long term because they are better adapted to the circumstances. But in contrast to natural selection, here the deviance is within a social system, which means it does not necessarily dominate or become the surviving behavior right away. A social system may resist to new behaviors by you know, sticking to cultural rituals or habits. So the role of the PD facilitator is to make the social system aware of the new behavior and learn from it more quickly than it normally would. But that's changed through adaptation, not disruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it, yeah, there's certain values associated with it. And we shouldn't forget the whole issue of values when we're thinking about change. And uh, I suppose this is anchored in more participatory democratic values. And I also... I suppose, says something about the kind of role of a change agent or a change leader in this type of uh, world. As you said, it's more of a facilitative approach. There's a lot of listening. There's a lot of observation. There's a lot of taking in. It's creating opportunities for people to bring forward their knowledge for that to be uh, observed and and, and understood. Mm -hmm. I think to understand the role of the PD facilitator better, it's time to bring in our guest into the conversation who has a decade-long experience working with the PD approach all over the world. Our guest today has more than 20 years' experience in leading and facilitating change. He was an innovation director in the Danish Ministry of Justice and worked as a senior consultant at Ernst & Young Management. In 2014, he founded the Welfare Improvement Network, WIN, a consultancy network that helps organizations implement sustainable welfare solutions. He has taught about positive deviance at several international business schools and published the chapter, The Power of Collaboration in Successful Change Leadership, in the book Complexity Unraveled. Lars Tusen, welcome to the Change Pod. Thank you for inviting me. I look forward. Lars, perhaps we start with how you came to positive deviance. What attracted you to the PD approach? How did you even hear about it? I think it was 12, 12 years ago. I um, I was the senior government official in the Danish Ministry of Justice. And I, I think, honestly, we worked with, with a lot of really competent people and we had a really good team. But the efforts uh, we did did not work well with our institutions. So, so I was really uh, frustrated thinking about, so how, how come that well-intended, competent people cannot initiate change? I, I, uh, I'm trained as a political scientist, so we didn't learn anything about that <laughs> during university. So I, I wanted to explore that more. So I, I went to, to Oxford and as you see, and uh, did a program there, an executive's master's program, where exploring different aspects of change and change leadership, change management. During that master's, I met and worked with uh, the founding father, Jerry Sternin, who was the founding father of the Positive Deviance Approach, uh, which has its 30th anniversary this year, and uh, Richard Pascal, uh, our professor. And we worked for a couple of days uh, with this approach, which was totally new to me. And I got really, really interested and inspired. But I was also puzzled because if we were going to do this and and going to try this within uh, the Ministry of Justice and with the prisons, I knew that we had to unlearn a lot of things, go back to almost a tabula rasa and start from the beginning because the approach is so different from what we usually do with top-down management approaches and and so on. So that's how I learned about it. That sounds like a steep learning curve, applying this approach for the first time in, in prisons. Tell us more about what you actually did and how you used PD in prisons. I came back from Oxford and um, I was thinking, and I remember I was walking uh, in my garden outside and I was thinking about this. And then I decided to call Jerry Sternin because I said, well, what have you done to me? <laughs> because I want to do this, but I don't know how to do it. And can you, can we have a conversation about how we can start something together? And he immediately jumped at it and said, yes, let's do something. And, and what we did during the next month was basically to create a platform for, for a project. I, I got a, some external grants, uh, some financial resources, and I also got permission from my director general to do it, even though he was a, quite skeptical at the time, because, um, well, the pitch with PD can be quite difficult when, when you talk to senior uh, leadership management. 
because basically in the PD, in, in the passenger deviance approach, you, you are exploring with local communities what the problem is. So you don't know beforehand exactly what the problems are. You know a little bit about how the process works and you don't know what solutions you come up with. So he was kind of like, what is this, Lars? Well, are you really going to do this? And I said, yeah, I would really like to test it and try it out. So he said, yes, do it. As long as you do all the other, you know, normal stuff you're going to do within your department, then, then it's fine. So that's how we got started. What was the problem you were trying to solve there? We had um, a lot of critical voices at that time criticizing uh, the performance of the prison system in Denmark. So it was uh, high numbers of staff absenteeism. It was uh, violence incidences. There were a lot of gang-related criminality and, and stuff like that. And we've been trying for years to do something uh, about it. Had some success, but the minute we kind of left the project and ended the projects, we went back to the old way of working with things, the bad habits, so to speak. So we were kind of stuck. And um, and that's uh, that's why I thought, well, we were facing some wicked challenges here and it's not done with just a project or there were no technical, well, to some things there were technical solutions, but, but, but not all the things. And it was basically... Um, a lot of uh, it, it was behavioral. It was it was uh, relationships between humans and so on that we that we needed to focus on in another way. So I so I knew that, but I of course didn't know exactly how to do it and 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 what we would find out there. And it was uh, criticism both from from the parliament, from the from our own uh, management teams, from the guards, from the unions, and sort of everywhere. And we were sitting there, you know, just feeling stuck. That's why I thought. That, that we could try out and see if, if the positive deviance could actually work in a prison system, which was interesting because it's a very hierarchical, uh, classical, bureaucratic system with a lot of, yeah, obviously power <laughs> is very important because you take uh, away uh, people's liberty and, and, and so on. So it was uh, an interesting experiment. And what, what was the outcome of the, the project? I mean, how, how did it go? Well, basically, uh, what we did was to invite uh, very openly, I think we invited 10 different facilities to come to our, to our first meeting. And uh, we introduced, we talked a little bit about the challenges I just mentioned and said, we have this, this uh, innovation approach. Would you be interested in, in, in joining a project? And some of them said, oh, uh, this is, a, this is a fantastic. Let's, let's go and, and test it. Others were skeptical, and there were also people saying, well, uh, this is like a toolbox that I really like to watch, but I don't know how to use it, so maybe it's not for me. And so I think we started in five uh, different prisons at the time, and um, maximum security prisons and also uh, one or two open prisons. And we started working with the staff, with the guards, with the social workers, and also with the inmates, and included them in a conversation about how they saw the problems and what kind of positive examples of behavior they, they could find. And we found quite a few. And then the process was obviously, so, so how can we move to, to that being only an individual behavior to actually scale it and, and disseminate it so others, uh, colleagues and, and others could actually learn from it. What were some of these behaviors? A couple of examples. There's one very uh, interesting example that, that I call the keys. So uh, basically, keys are a very important uh, artifact symbol in a prison, the symbol of imprisonment, and it's also the symbol of freedom. So um, the usual behavior in a maximum security prison, when, when an inmate wants to get out of his cell to either go to the toilet or do something else, he needs to press a button, and then there will be a bell ringing in the guard's room, and the guards would would need to get up, go, and, and open the door. But it's kind of an interruption. It, it's not that they don't want to go and help, but there might be many things uh, to do, and they might be busy doing casework and other things. So the usual behavior or the norm behavior, as we, we usually call it, would be to maybe wait five, maybe sometimes ten minutes before actually getting up. And it's actually ah, it's a little bit irritating because, it, because it's an interruption in, in, in your work. And then we found champions or, or deviant guards who actually did things in a very different way. So, so there was one guard who actually thought, oh, the bell is ringing. I, I better get up as soon as I can because it's important. And, and I don't know exactly what it is, but it's obviously he cannot get out. So I, I better go there and I better make a little bit of noise with the keys while I walk down uh, the, the hall. 
And once I get to the door, I would just take, I would just inhale and exhale just to kind of get ready to, to face the situation because it could be a violent situation. It could also just be, can I go to the toilet? You, you never know. And then actually he was knocking on the door, you know, and then waiting just a few seconds before actually opening the door. And when we talked with the inmates about the difference between these two types of behavior, they said, oh, it makes a lot of, lot of a difference. And it's a very simple, banal thing in a way, but it made a lot of a difference because the, the inmates told us that, well, this deviant guard, this, these champion behaviors, we are seen as humans. It's respectful. It's, it's actually somebody I can talk with about other things. It's, it's actually, uh, yeah, it, she is expecting my, my privacy here, which is where I live. So the behavior in itself might seem simple, but it actually enabled a lot of other conversation about rehabilitation, about trade job training and so on. So it was a really good way to build a relationship. How would you uh, scale up something like that? That's kind of micro level behavior to a much larger group of prison officers. One thing is, of course, to discover this, which we did jointly with the guards and, and, and also with the inmates. But then you need to ask this question, so what's in it for the other guards? What's in it for, for the other people in the community? And if you cannot answer that, then they don't have a, an uh, incentive or, or a motivation for change. So I think when we ask these guards, what, why, why do you do like you do? And then we found out, well, these guards, they come to work almost every day. They actually are quite satisfied with their jobs. So they were not as absent as the normal guards, which was a problem seen from the central office point of view. But they also had fewer incidences of violence and threats. So they were actually coming to, to their job not feeling unsafe and actually feeling that they were doing a good job. And then the guard sitting next to the person telling the story can actually say, okay, maybe absenteeism is maybe not my thing. That's maybe not, I'm not that interested in, in that. But avoiding threats and violence and actually having a safe, you could maybe even say quiet day where things go in the right way, that's actually something I can relate to. We, we, we try to motivate the deviants, the champions, to actually tell their stories in a way so it actually helped the others to to find the motivation. It's it's the what's in it for me, what's in it for them question you need to answer, I guess. Was the guard you were talking about aware that she was different or did something differently? No, and that's actually an interesting question because usually what we find in, 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 in these projects and when we work with this methodology is that people just, she was just saying, well, this is not very special. I'm just doing my job, you know. I'm, I'm just doing what I do. And so, so it was actually for her in this situation, it was actually a little awkward for her to actually stand up and tell her story because she was kind of, yeah, but this is just the way I work, you know. So that's also a part of the, I would say, the, the role of a facilitator or, or a leader in this situation is actually to help a person like her to tell, to tell her story openly. Not, not, not bragging, that, that, that's not the point because it's more the behavior than her as a person. It, it needs to be behavior that others can learn from. It needs to be something that's easily accessible uh, to all. So we have a term we call true but useless, or you could say the rich uncle syndrome, which is basically that you find behaviors sometimes that are wonderful and people who behave differently in a very positive way. But if they have more resources or access to other things than the others, then from a positive deviance point of view, it's not interesting. I'm wondering why someone becomes a positive deviant in the first place. Do they have different traits than the rest of the people in the community or are they more at the periphery of their community networks or even more in the center? May I give you another example? Yeah, sure. We worked with Roma communities in the northern part of Romania for a while to reduce school dropout among Roma students in secondary schools. We, we found there were a lot of problems, poverty, illiteracy, uh, violence, uh, early marriages, and obviously school dropout. And one of the, the champions, one of the deviants we found was, was a girl in the fourth grade. She was a kind of a quiet girl, not, not speaking up so much. And she was basically just doing her, you know, her homework and she came to school and She was, she was having an, an, a difficult life in some ways due to poverty and her father was in prison and so on. But, but she was managing her life in a way. 
it was not that she was an outcast or something, but she was just there. But once we began exploring these champion behaviors, at a certain point, I remember she said, oh, but I have a schedule. Schedule? And I was kind of like, schedule? Is that, is that really something? And, but then we stayed a little bit with it, and we asked a couple of more questions, and we found out that it was really important, this schedule. Why? Well, because in, in her life, there was a lot of chaos. There were not a lot of structure in her family life. Father was, as I said, imprisoned, a mother doing, she was a house, housewife. So not a lot of structure, no, no bedtimes, you know, no getting up in the morning at a specific time. So she needed this schedule to actually be able to structure her day, to get up, go to school, set aside a couple of hours for homework. And she kind of negotiated this schedule or at least informed her surroundings that this is the way I would like to work. But we thought it was simple in the beginning. But when you go behind it and actually find out what, what can this schedule do, well, it might actually help Betty, was, what was her name, to actually both, not only attend the school and make her homework, but actually graduate in the longer run. And the kids around her, her classmates and in the group, they, they didn't know it was. So she wasn't seen as a champion. She wasn't seen as, as anything special. And then we began exploring it together and they could actually, oh, but this is, this is actually something we can, we can learn from. So they copied her behavior and some of them produced schedules. Some of them structured their days in other ways. Uh, that's not so important, the tool itself. So to answer your question, you don't, you don't necessarily, you, you can be a quiet, normal person in the group, but you don't need to be especially popular or something. That, that, that's not it. One of the things that is very interesting about the PD uh, intervention is this emphasis on context. So it privileges the context. And the idea is that the solutions are in the context, which is really quite a different way of looking at change. Uh, I mean, the classic models are very much, you know, we have standardized knowledge and we need to actually transfer that into a context. You know, there's a lot, and consulting firms do that all the time. They're saying, yeah, yeah, we just need to introduce this particular approach. And um, I guess organizations love that kind of approach because they've got a ready-baked solution there that a, a firm is going to sell them. So they, they know what the answer is before they... So your, your example of the director of the prison was, well, can you tell me what the outcome is going to be? And you're saying, no, I can't. But you know, a consulting firm turns up and they say, this is what the outcome is going to be. This is what you're going to benefit. And we're going to get you so much in terms of savings or whatever is a productivity. So this is quite a different sell. And, and I'm just wondering, does that limit how you, you know, the, the scope for translating this into sort of other areas like the private sector or more commercial organizations or ones where the anxiety and pressures around speed and, you know, whatever else, profit or whatever, are are, are very, very significant. Well, I, I think it's a, diff it's a difficult pitch and a difficult sell. But I think if, if, if you really think of it, if we take the prison example, we had tried for years and years to solve some of these problems without success. And if you go to the Roma case I mentioned before, high numbers of dropouts, high numbers of unemployment, no, no good prospects for future lives for these young people and so on. NGOs, a lot of humanitarian organizations have tried a lot of things without much success. So that's maybe the first part of the pitch is actually say we haven't succeed, succeeded in, in doing something really sustainable here. And, and I don't know why we still believe in these things because, because it's, it's usually not working. Yeah, with certain types of challenges and problems, techni technical things, it works really well. But when we move into these more complex areas with human behaviors that need to change and so on, it's really, really hard. But basically, apart from saying we have something here that we haven't been able to solve, I, I think what is also important to say that, that, that positive deviance is not very resource intensive. It might take time and so on, but from a consultancy fee point of view, it's not expensive at all. You need a few infusions or you need a few conversations and perhaps a little bit of coaching from, from a PD facilitator. But that's that's about it. And then it's actually up to the communities and up to the people who own the problem to actually find the solutions themselves. 
I, I think at this point it would be helpful if you could walk us through a typical PD process and what the different steps in this process are. And perhaps also how it is different from a typical management consulting process. What we usually do in a, in a positive deviance process is that we spend quite a lot of time to frame the problem together with the, with the relevant communities. So in the prison example, from a central senior management MP point of view, it was absenteeism. It's expensive. It's a sign of a bad environment, work environment, violence, and so on. But when we worked in, in, the, in the institutions, it was having a safe space. It was violence. It was avoiding all these conflicts and so on. That was what, what was at the core. In the Roma case, school dropout was much too abstract. But talking about coming to school every day, attending the classes, doing your homework and so on, was much more specific. So the process, the first, we call it define the problem or picking the right problem face is really important. And that's very different from a usual managerial top-down point of view because from a, in, a, in a traditional uh, approach, you would come with the problem, say, maybe made the, you have made the analysis beforehand. So that's the first part of the process. And the second part is what we call discover the solutions or discover the champion behaviors, discover the positive deviance. And that's where we do the flip. So we, we ask if we have this problem about not attending school or having too many violence incidences in a prison or whatever, we ask, so does that mean that we don't know anyone who is actually behaving differently? And usually, not always, but usually, we find people or, or the communities we work with, they actually say, oh, but we have this guy over there or we have this woman over there who is doing things differently. And then the, the job is basically to explore what is this behavior about? How is it being unfolded? Why is it being unfolded in the way it is? So, so we can actually learn from it. So that's the second part of the process, which is the discover phase. And the third is obviously how to come from an individual behavior and then to disseminate and scale. So we call it the disseminating and scaling phase, which is basically how we initiate a peer-to-peer -peer learning process, which is different also from a classical approach, because in a classical, maybe best practice approach, we would say, oh, we have found some great solutions here. Let's tell people what to do. And then we implement it and we roll it out and, and, and so on. In a positive image process, you, you help the community to, to present the data they have found. So The, the deviant behaviors and the champion behaviors, and there might be some both quantitative, some numbers and, and some more qualitative stuff. And then you basically ask them, what are you going to do with this? And what usually happens is that the communities, they want, they want to scale, they want to do more, and then you maybe help them with some tools that can actually do that. So we have different community-based tools and so on that we use in this process, but we don't provide the context. We, we only provide the framework, so to speak, and they decide themselves which data point and which matrix they would like to work on. That can be frustrating for managers and management consultants because that's not the way we usually work. And that was also why I said in the beginning that, that I, I knew I needed to, to unlearn a lot of stuff because that's the way I was brought up in the Ministry of Finance and in a management consultancy company and so on. That that's, uh, was so different. But it works really well. You can connect or you can combine this process with different types of tools. We are working, for example, right now in a project with virtual reality tools to try to accelerate this process where we have built in champion behaviors into a virtual reality world where you can simulate these situations. We are often working with dramatic techniques to accelerate uh, also. We are also working with components from design thinking to map learning journeys and, and, and so on. My point being here that I don't think from a dissemination and scaling point of view, positive events cannot stand alone. I think, it, I think it needs to be combined with other approaches to be really effective. And, and I think we have some pretty good experiences with that uh, now, but it, can, it still needs to be uh, even better. Mm -hmm. You, the examples that you gave us are about changing communities. What's your experience using the positive deviance approach in companies and corporations? PD has mainly been applied and, and used in the public sector, government sector, and in the NGO world. 
with the UN agencies and Red Cross and, and NGOs and stuff like that. That being said, there are examples in the corporate world, and there are also really good examples of how to improve sales, how to improve customer satisfaction, and, and so on. But it's not that common in the corporate world as in, in the other examples I mentioned. It's something we've been thinking about for years, so so how, how can that be? I don't know. I um, We had a discussion a couple of weeks ago with some colleagues where we discussed this, and and Basically, some of the same dynamics and drivers and maybe also barriers that we found, find in, in organizations are kind of similar. It's kind of strange, but there is something, maybe something about urgency and kind of an impatience also. A lot of perhaps performance management systems that don't go so well together with the positive process. Some people we have worked with in the government sector or NGO sector say that they maybe have more, a little bit more patience, but I'm, I'm not sure. If you look at the UN system, it's very performance management based with a lot of deadlines and a lot of programming and a lot of monitoring and evaluation and so on. I, may, I think maybe the trick is to find some pockets where positive innovation can actually happen within the systems. I wouldn't recommend to say, now we have a PD strategy for a whole organization. And I, I don't think that's going to work. I think it's more like finding these small pockets where you can actually begin to work to crack systems from the inside, in a way, positively. It's not you know, doing a revolution, I would say, because that's not the point of PD. point is to find things that already work well and disseminate that. And I, I think if you pitch it in a, in a way like that, it might be easier in, in all organizations, actually. Because of the behavioral focus here about uh, people ad- adapting, innovating, change, doing, doing something in constrained circumstances. I remember previous conversation we had, you, you were talking about it being applied to some senior leadership contexts. Um, so that's, you know, and, and, and quite often people have a, a view that these kind of more senior leadership contexts are, are kind of out of the scope of <laughs> change initiatives in many ways. I'm just, uh, just interested in uh, any stories or insights that you have working on that level? When it comes to leadership, I, I think leading processes like a positive defense process is very different from a more traditional way of doing change. It's scary, perhaps, and it's, it's uncomfortable. Well, it's a lot about power because you actually you give work back to the people. You, you need to let go of control to actually make things happen, and you become more of a facilitator than an executor or, or a decision maker. And it was for me, it was scary as hell. And it was very, um, also very interesting. The leadership part of this is uh, very important. And that's also something that I really think we need to explore more in depth. Basically, how, how to lead processes like this in, in the best possible way. I know there are a, a few organizations who have actually done a little bit of positive deviance looking at leadership practices within their organization. There are a couple of NGOs. Doctors Without Borders have done a little bit of that. And I also think the NGO called Mercy Corps has done a little bit of that, where they basically have looked at positive champion behaviors within a leadership practice. And is is there something from these practices that we can actually learn from? That's both a more general part about how to lead processes like this. And also, can we actually look at more specific leadership practices? Is obviously the challenge of COVID-19 at the moment. And it seems that everyone is looking for positive deviance in, in all possible areas. Even if you read in the media the comparisons between countries and their approaches, you know, like uh, South Korea or New Zealand or Germany, or Sweden, where they have their very own approach. What's your sense of where the positive deviance approach can be most helpful in this current crisis? And where not? You're right. There, there are a lot of discussions right now about this. And there are also a lot of people who work within the PD community who have asked this question. And we are having this, oh, but this is it's obvious that we can do something with PD here. Maybe we can. I think it can work at different levels. So it can both work at a national level, maybe at a regional level, maybe at a community level, maybe even at, at an individual level. But I think the really important thing is to ask if these behavioral strategies that have been chosen, is it something that others can also do? Because if it's something that can be copied, then maybe 
the positive deviance approach is something we can work with. If it's special, if it's unique, if it's with some resources that others do not have access to, then no. If we look at the national level, there have been discussions about New Zealand, South Korea, I think Hong Kong as well, some parts of Germany and, and maybe others that have done really well. On the other hand, a land, a country like New Zealand is an island. And islands are very, very different from mainlands when it comes to the spread of, of, of viruses. Same about uh, testing procedures. That's also one of the things that people have been talking a lot about, that you initiate very early and quite widely different testing procedures. That might be something to explore as well. And also how early you have actually locked down. Moving to the individual level, I think there are things about hygiene, about uh, social distancing and so on that we probably can learn from. But again, I think the key question is, is it something if we were going to do a PD inquiry or a PD process talking about COVID, I would ask you, Matisse, could you do the same as I'm doing here in my country? Could you do the same with social distances and so on? And, and if the answer is yes, then maybe there is something we can learn from, yeah? What are, what are your hopes for a PD in the future? I mean, where, where would you like it to, how would you like it to develop? Where would you like it to go? I, I think PD has worked really well for the last 30 years. And I think PD needs to be modernized in, in some areas. For example, when it comes to combining it with other change approaches like we talked about, but also being more specific and better to do the dissemination and scaling part, because then I actually think PD can become more mainstream as a change approach. I think we have been able to create and tell a lot of really appealing stories about different case studies and so on, which is great. But I think if we want to take it to the next level, I think we need to maybe talk about it in, in, in a slightly different way. I, I remember this um, this example a couple of years ago, a colleague of mine, we, we were working with a UK charity where they actually have worked within healthcare, where they have worked quite a lot looking at positive examples and so on. And the problem was that the way they communicated this was very, in a very soft way. So they talked a lot about peer-to-peer -peer learning and they talked a lot about learning from communities and so on. And they did not talk a lot about implementation and a, a usual um, business case model or a change of theory and, and, and so on. So I think the challenge and maybe the thing we could do is also maybe to change the language a little bit. So we speak more in a more classical conventional way when we frame and when we talk about the different concepts. And this is not to to change the DNA of the PD approach. It's more to, to get into the boardrooms and into the rooms of the CEOs to actually be able to, uh, to talk with them. So in some ways, what you're saying is you need to have a positive deviant approach on positive deviance. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> take, take your own medicine in a way and understand where it has worked successfully where there are champions in particular segments, sectors, or contexts where you think it's been problematic and what can you learn from that? I, I, yeah, and I think one of the things that's, that's really uh, interesting is in some of the projects that I have been part of, we have been able to get people from different levels to actually meet. So, for example, taking survivors of violence, women survivors of violence, and get them to meet high-level people in the parliament to actually talk together about their champion behaviors and so on can be quite effectful because, and the ministries, they didn't like it. <laughs> it was not their thing because, oh, well, what are they to? They are victims. They are not, you know, experts and we shouldn't, you know. But if you do that, you can actually create some really interesting pockets where fruitful discussions but also change can, can actually happen. It's a lot about how to design and how to set up these things in a good way. Lars, thank you so much for the conversation. It's always great talking to you. You're welcome. So Mark, what do you take away from this interview? There were a few things for me. One is, how, how do you scale up something like this? Uh, given that it's based in local context and local community and you need community engagement because there is a pressure and a need to scale things up and make it work across big 
mm. sections of our population or in a particular context around food or forestry or whatever else. And I'm just wondering how, how, how that works and what the resources are that are required to do. Do you kind of work one community at a time mm. or is there an, another way of kind of making it work at, at scale? So I was, I, I, I was, I, I'm not too sure if the PD world has kind of right. addressed that or come to terms with it, but I, I guess it's one of the big issues in there for me. Yes, definitely. Where does the PD end and the best practice approach starts, right? In other words, how much local community do you need for the deviant behavior to still be relevant and uh, for the champions of the behavior to still have an impact on others? I, I guess it depends on the deviant behavior itself. I mean, if, for example, someone finds an easy and cheap way to make a very unique but effective face mask that no one else has thought of, um, I mean, that can be scaled up quite broadly, I guess. But for me, the interesting point was also why this approach is not catching on in, in business organizations. And I think it might have to do with this you know, mantram of many businesses that's, that it's all about alignment and cultural strength. I mean, cultural strength in the sense that people are on the same page, follow the same rules and norms, behave similarly according to the defined roles and, and so on. And then many change intervention, I mean, you hear managers saying that, you know, clear communication, alignment is key, but that takes away to some extent the, the wiggle room for people to behave differently, to have the different behaviors and understandings from which positive deviance then can emerge. So in a way, if, if you stifle the room for differences in experimentation, you limit your chances of finding positive deviance, deviance in the first place, no? I, I think there's a bit of a myth about that. Don't drink that Kool-Aid too, too quickly. I, I think in these organizations, there's quite a lot of variability in culture. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of research that's shown that even within these kind of so-called stronger culture firms, there are there tends to be pockets and quite local cultures as well. What needs to change perhaps is the mindset of organizations about what culture is. And if they were to to have perhaps a more anthropological sensibility to what culture is rather than a more managerial sense of what culture is, i.e. it's a culture which we want to impose as something top-down, it's strong norms, it's something aligned, but maybe understanding that actually human behavior can be quite different in, 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 in different contexts. And, and, and there could be much more diversity than organizations actually think within their context. Yes, but even if you assume that there is variability in behaviors, if you have strong norms of how to do your job and what is appropriate and what is not, you will make sure to stay under the radar with anything you do. That could be perceived as deviant, no? Uh, in other words, it is hard to find deviant behaviors in strong cultural firms, even if it exists, uh, because people make sure to, to not expose themselves. And in this context, it's interesting that Lars said that the PD facilitator's job is to discover deviant behaviors. I, I think it probably goes beyond that. I think um, it also gives people a voice. It empowers them to speak up, to help them understand what important contribution they can make to others. I think this notion of empowerment is, is really important in the PD facilitation Mm, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, in the in the in the kind of traditional corporation, I, I guess it raises issues about if there are examples of positive positivities, what is enabling them in that particular context? And it may be something to do with uh, the kind of nature of leadership within a team or whatever, or the, the way that it works together, so the, the, the norms of collaboration. There may be something about the norms in that particular unit that allow uh, uh, innovation to happen in some ways. But I, I do take your point, uh, which is that for many organizations where there is innovation, there can be defensive mechanisms there where people don't really want to be seen to be doing that differently because maybe they're seen to be breaking the norms or the rules. Exactly. You yeah. know, they're, band, they're rule banding, but they're rule banding because they can see a different way of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of permissible, I think, rule banding. It's not breaking, it's kind of, you know, shaping it to achieve your ends. Yes, and as you said, it is a shift of the mindset for company leaders and managers to 
Understand deviant behavior is not always as a lack of control, alignment, and clear communication, but as an opportunity, as an opportunity to experiment and foster innovation from the ground. And I like I like your I, your idea of the kind of evolutionary metaphor or concept as a as a way of thinking about this. You know, so if we think of it, but from that from that perspective, you you need to have variety to select from. Mm for an organization to innovate and adapt. And the question that I guess we're posing here is, do organizations actually allow variety to develop? Right. On a different note, Lars sent us a memo about a project where they want to use big data to enhance the positive deviance approach. We do not know the specifics of this project as it's still in the early phase, but that's an interesting development. Positive deviance and big data, no? Yeah, I, th I think so. Because I guess if you think about it a bit more, it might appear inconsistent because uh, I guess our views of big data are that, you know, these are like geo tags. They're kind of looking at using satellite images. They're looking at kind of big data is kind of that really kind of large telephone, mobile phone data or whatever else, traffic networks, networks and all the rest. And you kind of think that's really quite abstract from the notion of a community and kind of more micro and human behavior. So I'm really intrigued about how they're going to kind of align. Well, I don't want really to use the word align. <laughs> uh, how are they going to kind of make this work? I think there's always risks with these innovations. You know, are you are they going to push something down a pathway where it may not kind of feel comfortable and kind of moves it too far away from its origins? So I it raises lots of interesting questions about where an intervention goes over time, when other when put together with other uh, ideas and other frameworks and other approaches. Does it lose its roots or how does it maintain its origins in some way? I guess we'll find out in the future. So let's not wait another 30 years to invite Laura Speck and see how the positive deviance approach develops. Excellent, yeah. Thank you for joining us on today's ChangePod and we look forward to seeing you next time. Don't forget to click on subscribe if you like this podcast. See you next time.